Happy Palm Sunday. Holy Week is upon us. We're so excited to celebrate the events that changed everything. It's our sermon series. Last week, Pastor Larry Howard uh, kicked off our series for us, Easter, the events that changed everything, and we took an examination of the trial that Jesus went to. A crooked trial, a wicked trial, but the man on trial was anything but. He's perfectly innocent. And so we saw that Jesus was tried in our stead for crimes that he never committed, sentenced as a criminal. We're going to continue this journey on here for the next couple of weeks, and I cannot wait till next week. As we start Holy Week uh, this week, friends, let me just invite you. Uh, invite your friends. Invite family. Uh, we would love to have this building filled with people, first of all, that are giving praises to the risen Savior, but also for those that do not know the risen Savior, they could hear the good news and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And so we are just so thrilled to kick off. I'm blessed to get to kick it off this week here in Palm Sunday. Uh, if you remember Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus rode in to Jerusalem and the crowds took palm branches, laid down their clothes on the, the path and said, Hosanna to the king. They were ready to coronate Jesus as king uh, to rule over them, to free them from the, the uh, enslavement to the, uh, to the Romans, the authority of the Romans, and uh, Jesus had other plans. Jesus had other plans. We're going to take a look at that this morning. We're going to be looking at John chapter 19, verses 17 to 37. We were in John 18 last week. Pastor Phil is going to be sharing from John 20 next week on Easter Sunday on the resurrection. If you're using a Bible that's in front of you, uh, the Pew Bibles, uh, it's on page 768. Page 768, if you'd like to open up and read along uh, and see the scripture for yourself, that would be wonderful. Uh, before we take a look at the at the text, though, today's sermon's titled, Mission Accomplished. Mission Accomplished. I was talking with one of my friends this morning. We were talking about finishing some of those household chores that you've got laying around, right? Yesterday, I got out to my yard because we had a very wet winter, did we not? And so I've got stuff growing all over the yard. And while my wife's gone, I'm thinking, oh, man, we could get some stuff cleaned up when she comes back. So will be like, kiss right there on the cheek right? You know, I got some motives, right? So she's like real excited, hopefully when she gets home to see some of that. But I got, there's this elm tree in our backyard, and I mean, it brings branches that come down that touch the ground, and it was almost starting to look like a curtain in our backyard. You couldn't see from one end to the other, because these tree branches were just coming down to the ground. And so I got out there with some, some trimmers, and I start trimming. Now this tree is like, it's huge, big around, and we got branches all over. I'm like, oh, just a couple of minutes, right? Take care of that. After about 10 minutes, oh man, oh the shoulders, and I'm like halfway done. Come on, you can do it. Toward the end, there's a branch that I'm, oh, I'm trying to throw my arms up there because my arms are just so tired. But at the end, I looked at it. I looked at it. I thought, ah, oh, mission accomplished. It looks so much better. Maybe you feel that way. You've been had a project at home or or at work or a task that you needed to get done, and maybe you knew it was going to be really tough. Maybe a little bit grueling. You got to get through it. But when you look back on it, you're so thankful. You say, ah, mission accomplished. And so we're going to be looking at, at John 19 this morning. But before we do, I'd like to read for you uh, one verse from John 17. So if you'd like to turn back uh, maybe a page, John 17, 4. Jesus is praying there in the presence of his disciples. He looks up to heaven and he prays. And one thing that he says in verse 4 of John 17, he says, I have brought you, being the Father, I've brought you, Father, glory on earth by finishing, completing, accomplishing the work you gave me to do. Now, if you know the life and ministry of Jesus, he came across many sick people that needed healing, and he healed many of them, but he did not heal all of them. He came across many people that had, were demon-possessed, and he cast out many demons, but he didn't cast out all of them. When he came to cities, he preached to many cities and to many people, but he didn't preach to every person and at every city. Yet when he comes to the end of his ministry, he says, Father, thank you that I have completed the work you gave me to do. It's accomplished. It's done. And in John 19.30, we'll read it today. Jesus on the cross says it's finished. Now, we, we may be tempted as we look at this text to think, wait a minute, 
All, all I see are some people beating Jesus, mocking Jesus, humiliating Jesus, nailing Jesus to a cross, giving him vinegar to drink. How in the world is he doing anything? He is a victim here. But I believe the Apostle John, as he writes to us, he says, I want you to believe the truth about Jesus, that he could say, mission accomplished. Before we read the text, let's bow in prayer to ask the Lord for his help to understand the scriptures that we have before us this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we've sung praises to Jesus. We've said nothing compares to this. Nothing and no one compares to Jesus. I want to see Jesus this morning from the text of the scriptures today. I want to see his glory. I want to hear of his power. I want to know of his love and his compassion. But Father, we won't understand it and won't receive it and won't obey it and love it and believe it if you don't do a work in our hearts this morning. Would you please open my eyes, my ears, our eyes, our ears, that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. We believe that you want to do that. So we're asking that your spirit would fill us now and illuminate our hearts so that we could believe and see Jesus Christ, the one who accomplished his mission. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 19, 17 to 37. We'll read that in just one moment. But if, if you don't have it, we've got some notes prepared uh, that you could look at and follow along. I'm going to go kind of quickly. I've got eight things that Jesus was accomplishing here on the cross from John 19. Now, many of you may be kind of confused. Right? Well, didn't Matthew write about this? Didn't Mark write about this? Luke, the other gospel writers? Well, certainly they did. But as you know, if anybody looks at an event and they look at it just even standing next to the person, you've got just a bit of a different perspective. Perspective. It doesn't mean that you see different things. It just me, uh, it doesn't mean that you see uh, opposing things. It may mean that you see different things from a different perspective. And so we're going to be looking at John's perspective this morning. But I'd like for you to have some notes if you'd like to fill those out uh, as we go along. So if you don't have those notes, you can raise your hand and some of our ushers would be happy to get you a copy of that. So raise your hands real high. Ushers, I know you've probably already sat down, but could you help me out? Get some of those notes out to everybody. Keep your hands high and we'll get you those notes. But let's read the text together. John chapter 19, verses 17 to 37 says this. Speaking of Jesus, he was carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he had already died, uh, 
was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Here we have the word of the Lord. Here we have really such a tragic scene that I believe is full of irony. Here we have people that are getting ready to crucify, humiliate, torture Jesus. And yet, Jesus in the midst of all of this says, mission accomplished. It's finished. It's finished. I think John is, is helping us see and go beyond the temptation just to see a martyr, but to see a man who was perfectly fulfilling everything the Father asked him to do. So our main idea this morning, if you want to look at your notes, is that while he suffered and died at the hands of wicked men, Jesus Christ faithfully accomplished the mission the Father gave him to do. I think there are at least eight ways in this text that John wants us to see. There is something going on that you may not see if you are just standing by. He wants you to understand the testimony about what Jesus did fulfill while on the cross. Well, the first one we see is that although the soldiers crucified him between two criminals, Jesus willingly identified himself with sinners. Although the soldiers crucified him in between two criminals, Jesus willingly identified himself with sinners. And, and they put Jesus on the cross there between two others right there outside the city. You know, sometimes we focus so much on the pain and the agony of crucifixion. If you've, if you've ever heard about this, it's, you know, it's the Roman form of executing those that were criminals to the, to the government, criminals to the empire of Rome. And uh, without minimizing what Jesus went through, we have to understand thousands upon thousands of people were crucified very much like Jesus. And so here we actually have two criminals standing on either side of Jesus. I think the Romans are saying, look, look at this one that came in on Palm Sunday. Hosanna, Hosanna. And now look at him. He's hanging on a cross. He's dying a criminal's death. How absolutely pathetic. How pathetic. Dying a criminal's death. Last week we saw, this is an innocent man, yet he's dying as a criminal. Isaiah 53 foresees Jesus. See, Isaiah, 50, Isaiah uh, calls this one who's to come the suffering servant, the servant who would come. And so in Isaiah 53, 12, Isaiah foreseeing, looking ahead, seeing the servant who would come says this, God speaking about the servant says, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus was, was hanging between two criminals. And the Romans thinking that somehow they could just put him up there as any common rebel, any common criminal, Jesus was doing something so much more. He was allowing himself to be identified with sinners. He is saying, I committed no crime, but here I am with sinners all around me. Here I am an innocent man, but I'm willing to be judged as committing the crimes and sins that I never committed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Some of you here today may think to yourself, I, I don't really even belong in this place. I'm not even so sure that I could ever, ever receive this salvation because you don't know how bad my past is. You don't know the crimes I've committed. You don't know the sins that I've done. You don't know the rebellion that I've, I've had against this God who created me. You don't know how far the chasm is. Sometimes we, because we, we, we uphold the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, we say that chasm can never be bridged. That's true by us. 
But here we have a Savior. Here we have the Messiah coming and saying, I'm bridging the chasm so that I can be numbered with transgressors. I'm coming over to your side so that I can rescue you. Here we have the Messiah being numbered with transgressors. Being crucified between two criminals, Jesus is identifying himself with sinners. Have you received the one who was willing to identify with you today to rescue you? Secondly, in John 19, verses 19 to 22, let's read that again. It says, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. So from these verses, we see that, that Pilate is, is mocking Jesus. And not only that, he's getting a final dig into the Jewish leaders. You see, Pilate, I don't think, really wanted to be in Judea. He didn't want to be in that area. He always butt heads with, with the Jewish leaders. And so here he gets to dig at them a little bit, saying, Ha, hey, you guys, here's your king. Congratulations, he's dying on a wooden cross. And just to make sure that everybody could see his practical joke, he writes it in Aramaic, he writes it in Greek, and he writes it in Latin. All the three common languages. Just in case you didn't understand it, I want you to know, hey everybody, here's your king on a cross. Pilate mocking Jesus. And though we miss the point here, we, what we see is that Pilate was mocking him as king of the Jews. However, there was something else going on. You see, the cross wasn't just the place where Jesus was mocked. The cross was the means by which the Father would exalt and enthrone Jesus. Ephesians 1, 20 to 21 says this. Paul prays, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and the incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, including Pilate, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. You see, this, this crooked ruler was trying to mock Jesus and get a dig in at the Jewish leaders, but you see, the Father had a plan and Jesus was accomplishing a mission. He said, I'm going to go to the cross and you think it's the place where I'm defeated, but here is where I'm going to be enthroned. The great Bible scholar F.F. Bruce says this, the crucified one is the true king, the kingliest king of all, because it is he who, stretched on the, who is stretched on the cross. He turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory, and he reigns from the tree. This became a common phrase in the second century that Jesus reigns from the tree. You see, the church, just like us, 1,800 years ago, they looked to that tree, and, and beyond the mocking and beyond the humiliation, they saw this was the way that he was going to be enthroned. Don't be fooled, friends. Jesus was accomplishing a mission. Although Pilate mocked him as the king of the Jews, the cross was the means by which the Father would exalt and enthrone Jesus. Thirdly, Verses 23 and 24 of John 19 says this. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. Now, there's some that believe that maybe they took the clothes and divided it into four parts, but I think possibly a better idea is that they took, one took the belt, one took the shoes, one took the robe, and then maybe one took something that Jesus could have worn on his head and split it up that way, right? So it's kind of like this. I don't know if any of you are hunters, if you've seen somebody who hunts, you go to their house, I have an uncle who loves to hunt, and he's got trophies, skins, things all over his home. Those are the trophies of the game he's won, right? I believe that this could be a similar situation. The Romans seeing, look how many nations we've conquered. Look how many people we've hung on crosses. Look how many people have been brought to justice. I think the Romans are splitting this up so they could use it as mementos to remember this king of the Jews that has been causing a stir all over the place. 
I got his robe hanging on my wall. He is dead and defeated. But yet they come to this final garment, probably the garment that, that was closest to, like, like you'd wear under the re, underneath the robe. And they say, don't tear it. It's a, it's a good piece of clothing. Uh, let's decide by lot who will get it. And as you think in that moment, how humiliating. How humiliating. Here is Jesus. If he's not wearing clothes, he's up on a cross, probably completely naked or close to it. The king of glory. The king of the Jews. And here he is, instead of wearing these clothes, he's got soldiers in front of him, just kind of dangling it in front of him, uh, saying, look, here we go. You're naked, humiliated. In fact, we're selling this. It's never going to be yours again because you're about to die. But although he was naked and humiliated before his enemies, Jesus experienced the distress of abandonment by his father. Although he was naked and humiliated there in that moment by the soldiers, there was something much deeper going on. For John points us to Psalm 22. Psalm 22:18 says, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. This is a psalm, Psalm 22 of David. David, King David, as he, before he was king and as he was king, was often tormented by his enemies. They would come to him, threaten his life constantly, and he would cry out to God, My God, my God, why do I feel so forsaken by you right now? Why have you forsaken me? What he's saying there is, I feel so abandoned. I feel so far away from you, but yet I hope in you. I know you're coming. I know you're coming for me. But I feel so defeated right now. I feel so abandoned. Maybe you feel abandoned today. Maybe you feel forsaken. Maybe you feel as if your prayers don't go beyond the ceiling of your home, of your bedroom, of your dining room, of your job, of the roof of your car. Maybe you could identify with David. In this verse, we see that Jesus himself, in the dividing of his garments, and in the casting lot of his garment, for his garment, Jesus is identifying with that suffering one. Jesus, we know from the other gospel writers, Jesus on the cross says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is identifying with, with the abandonment that David felt. He's identifying with the forsakenness that we feel because of our sin that separates us from God. And he's saying, I am here to be totally abandoned, to be totally forsaken for sinners. Although he's naked and humiliated, he's experiencing something so much deeper than that. He's experiencing the distress of abandonment by his father. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely, this suffering servant again, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. It doesn't matter what the Romans are doing to Jesus. There's nothing that compares with what he was experiencing on the cross before God, saying, I will take all the judgment for sinners. I will experience all the abandonment. I will experience all the forsakenness. Everything that separates God and humanity, I'm experiencing it all right here, right now, so much so that I'm even willing to be humiliated as my tormentors Strip me naked and humiliate me. He's accomplishing a mission. He's accomplishing a mission. Next, we see in John 19, 25 to 27, this is such a, a moving section of this, this passage. It says, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. Now, now you've got the Roman soldiers, but in stark contrast, you see his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, when Jesus saw his mother there, what, I can't imagine what he thought when he saw his mother there. I can't imagine what Mary saw as she looks up at Jesus. Could you imagine mothers in the room looking up at your son hanging on a wooden cross as if you'd hang a picture on a wall? Suffering, dying, crown of thorns on his head with blood dripping down his face and his cheek, stripped naked, beaten, Suffering, agonizing. What would I say to my mother? Mom, get me out of this. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't be thinking about anybody else but me. I've got nails in me. I've been beaten. I'm exhausted. This is awful. Help, mom. Help. Help. 
Could you imagine what she's thinking? Son, what can I do for you? Anything, just tell me. In that moment, in that moment, we see Jesus do something amazing. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said, woman, now this wasn't a term of disrespect, this was a a term that was common. Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. It's believed that although all the other disciples were, were long gone, John is there with Mary and And Jesus says, take care of mom for me. Take care of mom for me. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. This is absolutely astounding, friends. In the midst of of all the grueling physical pain and experiencing all the judgment of God for the sins of the world, here Jesus says, take care of her for me. Looking out for her. Jesus is on a mission. And even in the midst of that suffering, he's thinking about others above himself. Philippians 2, 3 through 5 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Unless we think, well, it can't mean when I'm in the midst of suffering. It says in verse 5, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So as Jesus is suffering there, and I'm sure the agony that he feels to see his mother with tears in her eyes looking upon her dear son, he says, take care of her. Jesus is on a mission. And even in the moment of suffering, he's saying, I have come to be the perfect example of humility and love and compassion. Nail me to a cross, but I'm still considering others more significant than myself. The example of Jesus, he's accomplishing a mission. We move on to the next section of scripture in John 19 verses 28 to 29. It says, later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and it's not just done, but like the purpose has been completed. Everything was fulfilling its purpose and so that the scripture would be fulfilled. The scripture, the promises concerning Messiah given through the Spirit, given through the prophets, according to God the Father's plan, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. It's almost like he's initiating the act here saying, something still needs to happen. I'm on a mission. I'm thirsty. So what do they do? Verse 29. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Now, what scripture is he fulfilling? There's all kinds of conjecture about this, but I think the most likely verse is, is Psalm 69, 21. Another Psalm of David in the midst of suffering. And he's saying, my plight is so bad that I'm drinking vinegar. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been, <laughs> I've been trying to drink ap- apple cider vinegar every morning with some water. That stuff tastes awful. It's terrible. I have to drink it with a, a huge, I have to, you know, water it down with all kinds of water, right? It's supposed to be healthy for you. That's what I'm told. That stuff is disgusting. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Here you have Jesus suffering on the cross. And more than anything, I'm sure he would have loved a cool cup of water just, just to give him just an, an ounce of relief in the middle of all this suffering. But knowing the scriptures, knowing what was going to happen, he said, I'm thirsty. And he allows that horrible, horrible vinegar to be put to his mouth. Why would he do this? Why would he keep piling it on? Why would he keep doing this to himself? Is there something wrong with him? No, he's on a mission, friends. He's on a mission. He is going to fulfill the prophets. He's going to fulfill all that is spoken about him because he is the Messiah who is on mission. He is here. And although he was thirsty, although he was thirsty, Jesus remained obedient as a son to the plan of his father. Even in thirst, he wouldn't give up. Hebrews 5, 8 through 9 says, Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect or complete, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. 
Prince, he had to fulfill it. In fulfilling this, he's saying, I'm obeying my Father, I'm accomplishing his mission because I'm going to be the source of eternal salvation. But this isn't easy. This is in the midst of suffering. This is in the midst of thirst. And yet he says, I'm on mission. I must obey the plan of my Father. What keeps you from obeying the will of the Father? Sometimes I'm so disgusted even with myself. I think, I gave in that quickly. I gave in that easily. Here's Jesus suffering, parched on a cross. And yet he says, I'm willing to drink vinegar to fulfill the will of my Father. What keeps you from fulfilling the will of your Father? What a Savior we have. What a mission he's accomplished on. One. Chapter 19, verse 30, it says, When he had received the drink, Jesus said, Tetelestai. Tetelestai. It is finished. Now, I'm not one that usually likes to talk Greek here from the pulpit, but this this word is, is amazing. Jesus is saying, The purpose for which I came is complete. And it's done, and it's got effects that are going to change everything. An amazing word. But before we look at that word, before we look that that he accomplished the mission, I want to look at this. After he said that word, at the end of verse 30, it says, with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What a way to go. What a way to go. You see, at that moment, the the, the Romans thought that they were executing Jesus. And and although he was executed by the Romans at the request of the Jewish leaders, by his own will, Jesus laid down his life. He laid down his life. Lest we think this is just some poor, pitiful, pathetic martyr, we must know that no one takes his life, but he lays down his life. John 10, 17 to 18 say this, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. Not Pilate, not the Jewish leaders, not any Roman soldiers, not even Satan himself. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Well, Jesus, if if no one could kill you, why would you die in the first place? I lay it down so that I can purchase a people for myself. I'm laying it down because I'm on a mission that I've got to fulfill. He's laying down his life for the sheep. I have authority to lay it down, Jesus says, and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. What a way to go. I I would love to go this way, not on a cross, but to say, you know what? I've completed everything. I'm of old age. And you just kind of say... And that's it. You're gone. Um, Jesus has the authority to do that. He is the promised one. And when he finally fulfilled the mission, he said, I'm done. I'm out. It's finished. Mission accomplished. Well, we go on here now. So Jesus is dead. He's on the cross and he dies and Then we see some other things happen here. Verse 31, John 19, it says, Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. So they prepared for the Sabbaths, uh, which were Saturday, on like Friday morning, Friday afternoon, getting ready for the Sabbath. But this was a special Sabbath because Passover was happening simultaneously. So you have a weekly holiday, the Sabbath, and you've got an annual celebration of the Passover, and they're all coinciding together. So it was a really, really special day. Uh, Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses because any body that's hung on a cross is a curse. They didn't want to bring a curse on the land before this Passover Sabbath. Um, they, They didn't want the bodies left up there. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. And if if you've heard any other teaching or sermons on on crucifixion, one of the things that keeps the victims alive so often is they push themselves up so they can breathe, and then when they're down like this, it's, they can, they're short of breath, and eventually they die. And so when they keep pushing, and it was really cruel of the Romans. They let them, they give them this little pedestal that they could stand up on, so they could keep the process going to allow them to suffer for longer and longer and longer. It's horrible. Well, because of this, though, they said, well, just go break your legs so that they finally are just kind of propped down, and they die. And they come, they come to these, these three people, these three 
you know, uh, people hanging on crosses, and they broke the first person's legs, they broke the person on the other side of their legs, but when they came to Jesus, verse 33, they found that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear. Why, why does that matter? Why does that matter? Verse, verse 36 says, oh, it matters, people. I want you to know it matters. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. What kind of, what kind of passage is that? Why, why do we need to know that? Why do we need to know that? We well, see, friends, what John is doing is he's associating Jesus with the Exodus all the way back in the book of Exodus. The people of Egypt are enslaved in Egypt and God is about to deliver his people out of Egypt a long, long time before the time of Christ. And God comes, he says, I'm going to judge Egypt and I'm going to judge all Israel. I'm coming, I'm going to kill every firstborn. But I'm also, I'm not just a judge, I'm also a redeemer. Here's how you will receive redemption. You will take a lamb. You will kill this lamb. It must be a lamb without spot, without blemish. This lamb must not have any bones broken. And you're going to kill this lamb and you're going to take the blood and you're going to put it on the doorpost of your house. And when I come through the land, I'm going to pass over your house so that you can be rescued and redeemed. John is saying it's necessary that none of Jesus' bones are broken. And although the soldiers were sent to break his legs, not one bone was broken so that Jesus could be our Passover lamb. John the Baptist said of Jesus early in his ministry in John 1, 29, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is our Passover lamb. There was a lamb that came at the time of Exodus and it helped rescue people and get them out of Egypt. Here is the lamb of God. He's not just getting us out of Egypt, friends. He is washing our sins away. He's taking the sins away so that we could re be redeemed for all eternity. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. You are our Passover lamb. Peter says this, 1 Peter 1.19, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but this is how you were redeemed. You were redeemed with the precious blood, and not of an animal, but the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, a lamb that had no broken bones. John wants us to see beyond the shadow of a doubt. This is the sacrifice we have been waiting for. This is the atonement that we've been longing for. This is the payment for sins that none of us could ever pay with any kind of animal, whether lamb or bull or goat or anything. This one is our Passover lamb. And although the soldiers were sent to break his legs, not one was broken so that Jesus could truly be our Passover lamb. We have one final thing to see here that John, I think, is pointing out to us. We see that in 1934 and verse 37. It says this in verse 34. Instead, one of the soldiers, instead of breaking his legs, instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear. Just, to, just so that we know beyond the shadow of a doubt, Jesus is, is dead. And what happens there? It brings a sudden flow of blood and water. I'm no doctor, but I think that we can read from this, Jesus is truly dead. Jesus is truly dead. But wh why is this important? I mean, look, look at John, verse 37. John 19. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they pierced. They pierced. Standing there, you would see, oh, they didn't break his legs. Oh, they pierced his side with a spear. No big deal. Oh, no, John says, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. John's thinking about Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10, and chapter 13, verse 1. Zechariah 12, 10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David, years before Jesus, God promises, I will pour out on the house of David. Jesus is of the house of David. And I will pour out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me. Now Messiah's talking. They will look on me the one they have pierced and they will mourn for him 
as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves a firstborn son. John is saying, this is the pierced Messiah. This is the one they're going to grieve over. But the story doesn't end there in Zechariah. Look at Zechariah 13.1. It says this, on that day, on that day, Zechariah 13.1 says, a fountain, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Why? What's so big about this fountain? It says to cleanse them from sin and from impurity. To cleanse them from sin and from, from impurity. This piercing, it, it may seem insignificant on the surface, but John is saying this piercing brings us forgiveness. This piercing brings us cleansing. So although his side was pierced with the spear, through his death, Jesus became the source of our eternal cleansing from sin. Our eternal cleansing from sin. Are you clean today? Maybe you walked in and you just feel filthy. I've had days like that. You feel filthy. And it may not even be sins that you've committed. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's also sins that have been done against you and you feel dirty. You feel violated. You feel corrupted. Jesus came and he was pierced for you so that you could be cleansed from all sin. From all sin. That's what Jesus is accomplishing here. He's got a mission to accomplish. And unless we just see a, a suffering guy on a cross, John says, I want you to see something was happening here. Jesus was finishing the work that the Father gave him to do. Let's take a look back at John 19.30 again. I told you that we'd, we'd look at it just a little bit more. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, Tetelestai, it is finished. Now, I don't know, some of you, if you've been sick before, hey, are you still sick? No, it's done. I'm not sick anymore. Or you may say, uh, you know, uh, I had a really busy week, but thank goodness it's Friday. The week is over. It's finished. And we often use that term, it's finished, just to kind of denote, hey, it's in the rearview mirror now. I don't need to worry about it anymore. I can move on. That's not how Jesus is, that's not what he's saying. You see, this, this word here, it is finished, tetelestai, has the idea of purpose. It has the idea of a goal. It has the idea of a mission. It has the idea of something that, that must be accomplished for a good reason, for a good purpose. And so what we must see here is that when Jesus says, it is finished, he's not just saying, oh, I'm so glad that's over with. Jesus is looking at all the things the Father had given him to do. You see, this, this, this mission of Jesus, it's not something brand new. It's been something that's been talked about ever since the book of Genesis. You see, God created mankind, you and me, to have a perfect relationship with him. But that was broken because of our sin and our rebellion. But God made a promise in Genesis 3.15. He said, although that serpent has tempted you and corrupted you and separated you from my presence, I'm sending an offspring. And he's going to come and he's going to crush that serpent's head. The promise has started. The promises started to build. And then we come later to Abraham. And Abraham is there, and he's a man who's worshiping the moon, and God calls him out and says, I want you to be my man, because from you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You're going to have a seed. You're going to have a child. And eventually, through that child, is going to come the Messiah, and all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. And the promise started to build. There's hope. There's someone coming. Someone is going to take care of this sin problem. Someone is going to conquer death for us. Someone is going to crush that serpent, that old foe for us. And the momentum started to build. A little bit later, God appears before David. He says, David, you're a great king, but I'm going to give you someone from your family. Then he's going to rule on your throne, and he's going to rule over all the earth, and he's going to defeat every enemy, and he's going to bring peace. And the momentum started to build. There's more hope. There's somebody coming. There is a Messiah that's coming. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, I am the Christ. 
I am the promised one. I've come to fulfill the mission. I've come to be the suffering servant. I've come to be the serpent crusher. I've come to be the seed that's going to bless the whole world. I've come to be the one through the line of David that's going to sit on the throne and I'm going to rule over all the earth. I've come to be the one that's going to be pierced. I'm the one who's going to be the Passover lamb. And here on the cross, he says, after all the waiting, humans, it's is finished. It is finished. Jesus is saying, the scriptures are now fulfilled in me. The promises that God has been making have been kept. The sacrifices that are offered continually for sin, they've come to an end. The law, with all of its legal demands, it has been obeyed perfectly. The debt that is owed because of sin, it's been paid in full. The new covenant that establishes a perfect relationship with mankind and God has now been ratified. God the Father has been perfectly glorified. Divine justice and wrath has been fully satisfied. Perfect righteousness has been achieved. And every enemy, whether demons, Satan, sin, or death, they've all been defeated. Mission accomplished. It is finished. The great Baptist preacher of London, Charles Spurgeon, said this. The words, it is finished, it consolidated heaven. It shook hell. It comforted the earth. It delighted the Father. It glorified the Son. It brought down the Spirit and confirmed the everlasting covenant to all the chosen seed. Friend, John 30, 1930, it is finished the mission has been accomplished. I mean, this is stuff worth singing about. In fact, Philip Paul Bliss, the 19th century pastor and, and, and hymnist, he, he wrote, Man of Sorrows, what a name. And one of the verses I love, Lifted up was he to die. Oh, that poor martyr. Oh, no, 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 not a martyr. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished. Mission accomplished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior. Yes. He's a great Savior. My favorite bands, they're, they're called Citizens. Uh, they sing a song, a contemporary band. It's called The Strife is Over. I was listening to it on the way to church this morning. And a few verses go this way. The strife is over. It is done. The victory of life is won. The song of triumph has begun Hallelujah! It's finished. The powers of death have done their worst. For Christ the King has bore our curse. Let shouts of holy joy outburst. Alleluia. Friends, it's Holy Week. It's time for shouts of holy joy to outburst from our mouths. To sing Alleluia to our great King. We don't need to dread Good Friday. It's the day that the mission was accomplished. It's the day the debt that was, has been paid. So what are we going to do about it? Well, we're going to sing about it in just a minute. But what else are we going to do about it? See, Jesus' enemies thought they had finally won the victory, but at the crucifixion, Christ accomplished all the work the Father had for him to do. We sometimes can be tempted to view the death of Jesus as the tragic martyrdom of a great man, but the scriptures show us that the Son of God came to lay down his life and purchase the eternal salvation from sin and death that we can never earn for ourselves. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross, the work for our redemption is complete. It's finished. Here's some questions to ponder as you live this out this week. How does knowing that Jesus willingly died on the cross for you change the way you look at the crucifixion? Do you see it as a symbol of defeat? Or do you see it as a symbol of accomplishment, of triumph? The religions of this world, they, they require you to constantly do more and more and more. But here on the cross, Jesus declared, it is finished. In what ways have you been trying to work for God's favor instead of working, instead, excuse me, instead of trusting in the finished work of Christ. 
Will you trust in his finished work today? You may be feeling like it's never done. It's never finished. There's more. Is God pleased? Is he happy today or is he mad with me? What is it? Look to Jesus and he says, it's finished. It's finished. Let me ask for those of you that have trusted in this Savior. Who, who do you know this Easter season that needs to hear the message that Jesus did all the work so that they could be rescued from sin and death? Do you know somebody? Do you know somebody that needs to hear this message that Jesus finished the work? Yes. Will you tell them? Will you tell them? Will you share with them the fact that, that you know that the mission's been accomplished through Jesus? Will you tell them this great news that it is finished? Some of you here today have never put your faith in Jesus. John 19.35 says that the testimony about this crucifixion, he says, I'm writing this so that you also may believe. It could be finished for you today if you believe. I want to ask you, what's keeping you from believing in Jesus today? What's keeping you? What's keeping you? It's finished, friends. It's finished. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much. What a way to start Holy Week uh, to know that uh, regardless of what we'll remember that Jesus suffered, it was all on purpose. It was no accident. Jesus fulfilled the mission he came to accomplish. I pray that you would fill our mouths with this good news this week, that we would tell our friends, our neighbors, our family that the debt has been paid, that Jesus has finished the work, and that we could all have the benefit of eternal life when we put our faith in him. Father, I pray for someone here today or many, maybe many people that have never trusted in Jesus like this before to say, I want to bow before him as the Lord and Savior who's finished the work for me. Oh, I pray that you draw them today. Draw them that they may come to know Christ. Oh, that they may confess, Jesus, you're my Lord. And they could say it is finished. We love you. We give you praise. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You're dismissed.